How about we open up in a word of prayer? Lord God, we um, are just grateful for a chance to come before you, for a chance to spend time with other moms, for a chance to talk about um, these topics, which are so important, which are so near to your heart. You created mothers, you created families, um, and you created each of our children. So Lord, I pray that as we learn to shepherd them better, that you would just be with us in these moments, that you would be teaching us, that we would be hearing your voice throughout. In your name I pray, amen. So this week, we're talking about what it means to be brave and to be wise. And I think some of us tend a little more towards one or the other naturally. I tend a little more towards brave and a little less from wise. So for example, when I was in high school, I went to summer camp and there was a boy, and most stories of bad decisions always start with a boy. <laughs> and he was very cute. And I was sort of like, my identity at that age was to be like good at doing cool stuff. Where it was like, okay, I might not be as like put together as the other girls, but like I can do cool stuff. So that was my thing. And so I like to like skateboard and wakeboard and, and do all of those things. And so I was trying to impress this boy who was driving the boat. And I was like, oh yeah, I can wakeboard. He's like, yeah, I can, I can jump. Like I can clear the wake, which is basically like you start on one side and then you land gracefully on the other side. And I was like, yeah, I can totally do that. I can't do that. And so <laughs> we started going and I like full on bravery, like you have to make a pretty hard cut to jump that far, but I felt like pretty good about it. Uh, and so I just did it, I just went for it. And I cleared the wake, I did clear the wake but I did not land on the other side the way that I had envisioned that I would land. And I had like a half face bruise for the next week and a half or so. But what happened in that moment is that I found I can be incredibly brave when the moment calls for it, but not always incredibly wise. And so I think there are probably some of you here who are very wise, and maybe there are moments when you wish that you've been more brave. But part of this mom strong, part of what we're talking about today, is the importance of being both brave and wise. Sometimes in these perfect moments in life, God shows us how to be both. And so that's why I'm excited today to talk about the story of Ruth. Because mom strong moms are brave and wise, not because it comes from within, but because we have our eyes fixed on the one that we can trust. And this story of Ruth is a beautiful picture of this. So I love that Heidi, our author, chose this for us. I hope you got a chance to get to the very end of your study and learn a little bit about Ruth because we are going to take sort of a deeper dive into that. And we can actually learn a lot about Ruth from the last verse of Judges, the verse that comes right before the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is nestled between what was called the time of the judges and the time of the kings. And so in Israel, they have these people called judges, and they are sort of ruling over things and trying to sort everything out. And this is what Judges 21 verse 25 tells us about that time. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. It was bad. It was a bad time to be around. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. People had forgotten the law of God. And so they were doing whatever they wanted, and the results are disastrous. And so when this story opens up, 
we get sort of a little window into what this terrible time looked like for this very specific family. And so as we, as we open up, there's been famine in the land. And so a woman named Naomi has left the land of Israel. She's left Bethlehem, the home of her husband, the home of God's people. And they travel to a place called Moab because they're looking for food. And she has two sons. And while they're in Moab, they live there for a while. Both of the sons get married to women from Moab, Moabites, as we call them. One of them is Ruth, and the other one is Orpah. And so as they're living here, um, disaster strikes again. So not only are they experiencing a famine, but both of the, husband, both of the sons die. So Ruth's husband and Orpah's husband and Naomi's husband dies. So they are left with three widows. They don't have any land. They don't have anything. They don't have food. And they don't really have a way to provide for themselves. And it's a bad situation. And they're living in this land that's far away from God and far away from God's people. And so what happens is that Naomi catches wind of some good and hopeful news. She learns that there is food back in Jerusalem. In the land of Bethlehem, they have a harvest again. And so she decides that she needs to go back, be with her people, and try to get the food. And so what naturally would happen in this scenario is that she is, she's waving goodbye to her daughters-in-law, and she's saying, I need to go back to the land of my people, and you need to stay here with your people and, and our author, Heidi, in the study, she highlights this kind of iconic statement that Ruth makes. And it really is a beautiful moment for Ruth. This is what she says. When, when Naomi's saying, goodbye, I'm leaving, Ruth says this, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. So she makes this beautiful statement. But it's more than just a beautiful statement. You see, what would have been smart for Ruth would have been to stay. She could have gone back with her father and mother. She's called a young woman. We don't know exactly how old she is, but we know that she's still of eligible marrying age. So what would have been smart would have been for her to stay with her family, tried to find another husband, and survived that way. But she doesn't do that. And what I, what I really want to dig into in this passage is what motivates this speech? Why does she say this? Why does she make this decision? And we don't know totally, but if I were to speculate, I would guess a couple things. I think probably she's been a part of this family for at least 10 years. And I think maybe she's seen their faith. I think maybe the faith that Naomi has, Ruth has watched, and she's understood that this is something I want to be part of, and this is something I want to follow. Maybe her husband had the same faith. Maybe the whole family, they practiced this faith together. And so Ruth makes this very counterintuitive decision that she's going to travel back with Naomi. Now they're both going to be widows living on their own, trying to get by. I think that Ruth's bravery stems from the place that our bravery ought to stem from. And it was not the place where my bravery stemmed from that day on the wakeboard. Her bravery stems from her faith in God. This sentence right here, this speech that she gives us, makes one thing clear. I don't know exactly what motivates her. I don't know what all the factors are, but I can see that she's faithful. She has faith in this God, in this faith that she married into. She wasn't even raised in it, and yet she understands it so clearly. 
And I think that um, when it comes to bravery, when it comes to wisdom, when it comes to Ruth, I think there are sort of three practical takeaways, three truths that we can learn from the story of Ruth. And they're on your outline for you. And I think that we can apply these to our own journey in motherhood. And the first is this. Bravery is active, not passive. As soon as they get to Bethlehem, Ruth gets to work. She decides to go glean in the fields. Now, gleaning is basically this ancient practice that was set up by God in the law. It's sort of like an ancient welfare system. And what happens in gleaning is that people, widows, orphans, poor people, are allowed to follow along behind the harvesters and pick up anything that they drop on the ground. This was sort of a system that God himself had put in place as part of the law to make sure that people were provided for. And so rich landowners like Boaz would have been familiar with this process and would have had people gleaning. And so as they're harvesting, whatever they drop, they just leave, and then the people come behind and they pick up what they can. I imagine it was about um, enough to get by, but it was not an abundant harvest, usually, for people who were gleaning. And in fact, it's not a risk-free endeavor. There are several remarks made by Boaz and Naomi in Ruth chapter 2 that suggest it actually would have been a pretty good day for Ruth if she wasn't assaulted in those fields. It was dangerous, and she knew that it was dangerous. And yet, she steps in. And not only does she step in, but she also has the audacity to ask for more. If you look at Ruth chapter 2, verses 6 to 7, what's happening here is that Boaz comes up to ask his foreman, who is this woman who's harvesting? And this is what the foreman tells Boaz about Ruth. He says, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Now, unless you're extremely familiar with the method of gleaning, there's something important in here that's easy to miss, and that is that Ruth asked to gather grain behind the harvesters. Normally, people would glean on the margins. They would be on the outskirts, but Ruth is actually boldly asking to follow along. Now, keep in mind, this woman is a foreigner. She comes not only from a different place, but a despised place. She's a widow. She's a woman. She has a lot of strikes against her in her culture, and yet she makes this bold proclamation. Her bravery here stems from her motivation. Ruth's bravery stems from her motivation. She is motivated to take care of Naomi, her mother-in-law. And I love her love for her mother-in-law. And I love that this love propels her to do something brave. I think most of us who are moms don't have a lot of trouble in the motivation department. I think as soon as you hold that little baby for the first time, there is something that awakens in you and it is a little bit terrifying that mama bear, that instinct, that I will claw your eyes out if you come near my baby, that's in all of us. And maybe for some of us, it had been laying dormant for quite some time. But that's the mama bear. Any threat to your child brings this out immediately. This is motivation. We're motivated by our fierce love for our children. If you've been following the news at all, you'll see recently uh, Felicity Huffman was sentenced to a prison sentence, and there are a lot more sentences that are going to roll down because a lot of parents decided um, 
that they were going to plow over the obstacles in their kids' way. See, they, they took this thing that was inside of them, this fierce love, and they took it too far. They did not mix in wisdom and discernment and character with their bravery. And instead, they pushed through with this fierce love. And there's no doubt in my mind that those people love their kids. They're trying to set up what's best for their kids, but they crossed so many lines in the process. You see, this, this motivation, this lesson for us as moms is that there's a danger in that fierce love. Left unchecked, it can lead to some pretty bad consequences. And it's not good for the parents, and it's not good for the kids as well. And I think this is why the other part of Ruth's bravery is so important to us. It's that Ruth's bravery stems from her faith. See, she weighs her motivation against her faith. She's a godly woman. There's no doubt about the way people speak about her and the way that she speaks. Look at the way she speaks to Boaz in Ruth chapter 2, verses 10. She falls at his feet and thanks him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asks. I'm only a foreigner. You see, Ruth is, is brave and bold, but she is not into herself. She is not pumping herself up to go be brave. She's not brave because she thinks there's something great inside of her. She's brave because she trusts in God. So bravery, it means that we act boldly, that we are active and not passive. But it also means that we trust the outcomes to the Lord. The parents who are in trouble right now, they weren't, they weren't willing to trust the outcomes. They were willing to be active, for sure, active and not passive. But that doesn't mean that you get to control every piece of it. Being an active mom doesn't mean that you get to decide all the things. We have to leave some of these things up to the Lord, and we have to have the humility to understand that we're not as smart as God is. And even my best plans for my kids are not as good as God's plans for my kids. And that's a hard lesson. Because we all have ideas and pictures and visions about what life is going to be like in our family and with our children. And we have to just keep reminding ourselves, I have to keep reminding myself that God's plans might look different from that. But ultimately, I have to trust that he knows what he's doing better than I do. Do you see motivation and faith fuel mom strong bravery? And so to pick up in our story... What happens after Ruth starts gleaning and Boaz takes notice and here she's thanking him for the kindness? It's because he is heaping sacks and sacks of barley on her. And in fact, there's this really funny moment where he tells the men who are harvesting, he's like, hey, when you harvest, drop a little extra on purpose. So they're like walking through, I'm just picturing them like, whoops, like <laughs> drop that one. So they're leaving all of this stuff to the point where Ruth is basically like carrying like, you know, when you try to stack 20 grocery bags on each arm. Like that is her walking home with the barley. And Naomi is like, where were you today? Because she knows that what Ruth has brought home, this is not normal. This is not a normal result of a day of gleaning. As we learned earlier, it would have been a good day if she didn't come home with bruises and limping home. But instead, she comes home with this abundance of love. And this is our first picture into the character of Boaz. He is a really solid guy. And he's a godly man, just like Ruth is a godly woman. And so our next lesson, I think, that we have to learn comes after she comes home. And she's finishing, she finishes out the barley harvest. And then she's sitting with Naomi. 
Our second piece of wisdom is wisdom. Listen to wise advice. See, Naomi is more than just a mother-in-law to Ruth. She's also a mentor. She's also a person that, Naomi, that Ruth will listen to because she knows that they have a very high level of trust that's established. We saw that in chapter 1 before we even met these women. They had a deep bond. And even to the point where when things get a little weird in chapter 3, Ruth doesn't even seem to hesitate. So after the barley harvest finishes, there is a celebration, and it's a men-only celebration, where they celebrate the harvest and they have this big old party. And this is what Naomi says to Ruth. My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he has been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be, on the winnowing, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now, do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. It's weird. It seems weird. It's weird. But there's a few... Yeah, it's weird. But there's a few things we should establish. First of all, this is not a seduction scene. We have learned over and over again just how godly and noble Ruth is. We have learned over and over again just how godly and noble Boaz is. Naomi is not suggesting that Ruth go and seduce Boaz in this moment. That would be completely counter to their character and counter to the narrative that we have been reading so far. So what is Naomi telling Ruth to do? Well, she wants Ruth to make it clear to Boaz that she, Ruth, is eligible to be married because Ruth was a widow. So it was likely that she was still wearing widow's clothing. So whenever Boaz had seen her previously, that would have been like a big like off-limits sign, right? She's wearing her widow's clothes. And so Naomi is saying to her, it's time to be done with the widow's clothes. You need to put on your nice clothes, and then we need Boaz to know that if he's interested, you're available. And so what, she, what she's doing here is actually very wise and strategic. She's, she's choosing this moment, this big celebration. She's like, wait till Boaz is in the best mood possible. He's feasted, he's had his drinks, he's been hanging out with all the guys. When he sleeps, he's gonna wake up, he's gonna see you, you're gonna be beautiful, and then he will tell you what to do. I love that she's like, he's gonna, she's like, okay, sure, like, I'll do that. I would not, probably. But they have a high level of trust. And so this is what Naomi's doing. She's acting strategically to set Ruth up for the best possible revealing that Boaz is eligible to marry Ruth. He's eligible to be a kinsman redeemer, which is a phrase that you can't get around when you read the book of Ruth, and we'll unpack that a little bit more in a little bit. But as we're taking these, these modern-day truths from this story, you might be asking an important question. Listen to wise advice is what I have told you. But see, Ruth knew that she could trust Naomi. So the question that you might be asking or should be asking is, how do I know if something or someone is trustworthy? How do I know? Ruth had complete trust in Naomi in this ridiculous thing that she had asked her to do, and yet... We hear advice all the time, and sometimes it contradicts itself, right? 
At the beginning of the story, we asked um, a question in the study last week. If you knew women who are wise, and I hope that you answered yes. And if you haven't, I hope that you've thought and prayed about it a little bit more because mentorship is so important to the body of Christ. Mentorship is so important to you as you are learning how to follow Jesus, what it means to look like him. And, you know, I actually, um, this probably like a decade ago, I realized I didn't have any mentors in my life. And it kind of broke my heart because I wanted people to, to look up to and to meet with and to talk to. And since that time, I, I prayed that the Lord would bring people into my life. And now I have like a lot of mentors, which is great because I tend to compartmentalize. I have my professional mentors and my personal mentors and my mom and wife mentors. And I have um, just people who are speaking into me and teaching me what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so if, if you don't have that, don't feel discouraged about it. Just pray and ask God because God wants us to be in relationship with each other. And so that's the first note on seeking wise advice. Sometimes when you find someone who's wise, you need to ask them to share their wisdom with you. Most people actually don't like to give unsolicited advice. Unless they're your relatives, they are likely not going to do that to you. And sometimes you just need to ask. You need to say, hey, you know what? I love the way I see you parent your kids. Would you teach me about that? Would you teach me some of your strategies or some of the things that you do? And I think people um, sometimes just don't, they don't feel qualified or equipped, but when they get asked in such a personal way, they really appreciate and respect that. And so find someone wise to learn from. But also remember that even the wisest woman that you know might not be right all the time. And sometimes in our world, we end up with too many sources and not enough wisdom and discernment to sort it out. So I have this, I have this friend, and she asked on Facebook um, for parenting book recommendations. Hey, what are the best parenting books you've read? And these were the results that she, these were some of the results that she got. A little light reading, anyone? <laughs> you know what, some of these books are great books. I've read some of these books. But this is what I'm talking about. There's an overload of information out there and it's hard to know what's right and what's wrong and it's and it's hard to sort through it's a barrage of information and I think for so many of us as moms we're just looking for the way to do it right we're looking for the best way and some of these things they contradict themselves like you're all moms you know this it's like cry it out because your kids need boundaries or no 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 you should never let them cry because they'll be traumatized for life or all the way up to encourage your kids to go to college to like no now it's all about the trades like you're hearing so many different voices when it comes to the choices that you have to make as a parent every day and i wish that there was a quick and easy solution to this but there is not you see wisdom it requires good old-fashioned discernment. Wisdom requires discernment. Discernment is the ability to filter through the information coming in. Discernment is the way for you to figure out which bits are true and which bits are not, or which bits are best and which bits are not. And discernment, discernment requires knowing your father's voice. Earlier in the study, we talked about all the obstacles, all the things that make it hard to spend time with the Lord, whether it's interrupted nap times or piles of laundry or absence of quiet for quiet times or deeper issues like feeling inadequate or ill-equipped to really study God's word, frustration at what seems to be silence coming from God 
or just a lack of motivation to do something that can sometimes be boring or not as immediately fulfilling as watching something on the couch on Netflix. There are a million things that can get in the way of us spending time with the Lord. But if we don't make the time to listen for his voice, we're not going to be able to, to know what it sounds like. And the more we listen, the louder it gets and the easier it becomes to filter through and discern. And so that's why I'm so excited um, to do this study. I'm so excited to be studying alongside with all of you because these things help. Accountability helps. Meeting with other people who are just as eager as you are to sit down and listen on the Lord, that is a beautiful thing. And it's so necessary. It's so necessary to sit in silence and listen for the Lord. Even Jesus did this all the time. We read about it. He retreated to still and quiet places to be with his Father. All over the Gospel, we read about him going to these quiet places to pray, and yet so often I find myself running on spiritual fumes, looking around like, I'm not sure how to get full. How, how do I forget how to get full? I don't know. It's more about making time, and it's more about making space for me. It's impossible to fit it in, but we have to fit it in. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that I'm excited to do this with you all, is it's going to give me a chance to do some filling of my spiritual tank. And I hope that you get the opportunity to do that as well. The third truth I think we can pull from the story of Ruth is remembering the bigger picture. We can't talk about the story of Ruth without unpacking the ending a little bit because it's just too good. It's too good. And so after this bizarre moment on the threshing room floor, Boaz decides that he for sure wants to marry Ruth. And there's one obstacle in the way. There's another man who's closer in line to be the kinsman redeemer, but Boaz basically uh, works it out with him, which is kind of gross. They're like bartering for human beings, but we, we don't have time to unpack that right now. It was the ancient cultural practice, and so Boaz works it out with this other man. He basically like slyly convinces him, like, you actually don't want this. And the guy's like, okay, I'll pass. And so Boaz is like, okay, I'm going to do it then. And so they get married. Ruth and Boaz are married. And then we, we get this little scene in chapter 4, and I love it so much because it's basically like the author zooms in really close, and we see Naomi, and she's holding a baby, and the baby belongs to Ruth and to Boaz, this little baby boy by the name of Obed, and Naomi is surrounded by the women of the town. These were the same women that when Naomi came back to town for the first time, they were like, who are you? Because you look terrible. These women are now heaping praise and blessing on the family, and they're praising God for what he's done because they understand um, that he's the one who's made all this happen. And so in Ruth chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, this is what they say to Naomi. Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you, and has been better to you than seven sons. Which is a very over-the-top thing to say, because there would have been nothing better back then than seven sons. But Ruth is wonderful. So, so God has redeemed this family, and we get to see this little picture of it. And, and Ruth was actually married for ten years before her first husband died. So the fact that she now has a baby is miraculous in and of itself, because she was probably under the impression that she was barren and that she couldn't have children. And now she's holding this baby who's basically redemption personified. 
This whole family has come full circle because of God and his faithfulness. And if that was the end of the story, it'd be such a good story, but it's not even the end. You see, after this, after this little picture, the author starts to zoom out even more. And then we see at the end of this story that this baby becomes the great-grandfather of King David. David, who would be a man after God's own heart. David, who would play a very significant role in the story that God is writing and the story of redemption. But if you were to jump to Matthew chapter 1, you would see the story zoom all the way out and through 42 generations in which Boaz is named and Ruth gets a shout out and Obed gets a shout out to King David all the way to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. See, this is the story of redemption, but it's not just the redemption of this little family. It's the story of redemption of us all. It's the story about how God was behind the scenes working all the things, that all these little snapshots of people's lives were moments that seemed most miserable and most hopeless. God was breathing hope through it all. And it was all pointing towards this hopeful moment that would be for everybody. That the kinsman redeemer, the person who can come in and rescue us, that person is Jesus for every single one of us. Even though none of us is worth saving, even though we haven't done anything to deserve it, that Jesus would come and do that. That's the redemption story. And that's why the story of Ruth is so beautiful, because it's a little snapshot of what God was doing on a macro level. And that's the final lesson that we have from Ruth today, is that there's a bigger picture that you cannot see. Ruth never even got to see this in her lifetime. She would never know who King David was or what the significance of him was. And she would certainly never know on this earth about Jesus the Messiah. And so when you're tempted to control everything around you, just remember that there's a bigger picture and you cannot see it. And God is writing it and it's a masterpiece. And it might not look exactly how you want it to look. In your chapters, you might want to write for yourself, but God's already writing them and he's a better writer than you and me. And I know it's really difficult to take this in, in this stage, especially if you've got little ones at home or bigger ones as, they get, as their problems get bigger. It can be really easy to lose sight of the bigger picture of what God is doing. And it can be really easy to just want to seize that control back. See, my son, he's five right now, and he struggles a bit with social boundaries. Uh, we had these conversations a lot. I don't understand why he doesn't know that you shouldn't talk two inches away from someone's face when you're having a conversation with them, but he does not. And I was just talking about this on Sunday with Andrea after church was, I, I have this tendency to, to write the narrative for the rest of his life. If he doesn't learn how to not talk so close to people's face, he's never going to have friends. This is going to be his whole life. He's going to be rejected, and he's going to be alone. He's going to be a loner weirdo. And I have, I'm writing this whole story, right, because of this one thing that feels so big. But God is writing a bigger story in Ezra's life, and it's a better story than I'm writing. And I need to not get lost in those moments. And I need to not forget about the fact that God's got this and we can trust him. In these, in these moments, I try to remember this simple prayer by Margaret Feinberg. She says, God is good. God is on the throne. Breathe in. Breathe out. Do you think that Ruth ever imagined that she would be part of the story of the redemption of all of humanity? Even in her best laid wildest dreams for herself and for her family it wouldn't hold a candle to what god's plans were and the same is true for you god is on the throne i am not
And that is a very good thing. God is writing a story in me and in you and in every single one of our kids. Let's be brave enough and strong enough to trust him with the script. Lord God, it's um, it's so good to, to talk about this. It's so good to be reminded of your faithfulness again and again, of the redemption that you are just weaving throughout everything. The way that you redeemed this little family, the way that you'll redeem our families, and the way that you've redeemed it all. Lord God, I pray that we would trust you with the script, that we would trust you as a greater writer than us, that you are on the throne and that we are not, and that that is good. In your name I pray, amen.